The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. 70% of people, when asked about religion in our culture, believe that religion is losing influence. And what we talked about last week is depending on who you ask and the kind of religious background you come from, that could be seen as a good thing or a bad thing. See, part of the reality of the way we talk about and think about religion in our culture is that all religions come with, that, with it certain baggage, right? Certain ideas, certain concepts, certain, certain history that adherence to that religion have done in the name of that religion that make it difficult. And so for some people, it's easier to push religion to the side than to actually deal with it. See, religious baggage makes it easier to avoid than to take seriously. And so what we experience for many people is religion is something they stay away from. They, they, they fear the ideas of religion or anything that might appear religious. No, no, one of the things that we talked about is in our changing religious landscape is, is that we see one of the fastest areas of growth when it comes to religious ways of thinking are those who are not affiliated with any religion. In fact, that's, that's one of the fastest growing religious groups in our culture, what would be called the nuns, that, that there are no affiliation. Now, now what's, what's interesting about that is that does not necessarily mean that those who are devoted to a religion is also decreasing. See, one religious leader um, talked about the changing landscape and and said what we have is a change in the mushy middle, right? It's a change in that gray area between the two different sides. And so what we we are seeing is there are more and more people who don't identify with any, any one particular religion. But what you also can observe when you look worldwide especially is that there also are growing numbers of people who are highly devoted to their religion. What is changing, however, is what happens in between those. And so in recent history, what you'd have in our own culture is you'd have people who were nominally Christians. That you had people who identified as Christians and they, and they considered some Christian ideas. And so they maybe, they maybe weren't all in, but they would call themselves a Christian. And they would sporadically attend church. And because of that, um, culture was general, generally Christian-y. And so, we, and so you'd consider things like, like prayer and the conversations and scriptures. Right? It, it was generally a part of culture. And so what has happened now is, is, it, is it's kind of flip-flopped. And so in the middle, instead of being closer to religious devotion, has now moved closer to being not affiliated with any particular religion. And, so, and now instead, you don't have as many people who are just nominally Christians. Instead, there are less people sporadically uh, attending church and culture is just not Christian-y in the way that, that it once was. And so what you have is this change of the middle. And what we have is that, that is largely happening is because people are skeptical of the ideas of religion. Because of the history, because of the ideas, because of the concepts. And one of the solutions that people have created to this dilemma... Because while, people, uh, while, while many people want to avoid religion, um, it, it also is, is true that more and more people are, are, are very spiritually engaged, thinking about spiritual ideas and concepts. And so what people have, have, have done is, is they've kind of created this pick-and-choose way of thinking about religion. In 2014, in the city of Berlin, the first ever Chermoskagog was created. 
It's a combination of a church, a mosque, and a synagogue, all in one house of worship. It's called the House of One. And so the idea that they had when they, when they created this was that they could bring three of these major religions together that Christians, Jews, Muslims could all worship under one, under one roof. Now, now, for many of you, when you hear that, that that's just a bizarre idea, right? But how, how, in the, how in any possibility could something like this function? But, but what I would suggest is that is symptomatic of the way that many of us in, in our culture try to think about spirituality. And so we, li- we like to pick and choose. And so I might pick Christianity, I might pick Islam, I might, I might pick Judaism. And so as long as it's all basically good, as long as it's loving, it doesn't really matter what you pick. And so this is the, the, the way that many people have adopted their, their spirituality. A friend of mine calls it buffet-style religion. Right? People often like to pick and choose what they want from a variety of religious practices. And so I'll pick a little bit of this, I'll pick a little bit of that, and I'll pick, I'll pick this one, I'll leave out that part that I don't really like. And so we create our own version of religion. We, we pick and choose the, these different ideas, these, these different practices. We pick and choose the religious practices we like, and we leave out the ones we don't like. And so what Jesus comes and does is he offers us something different. He offers us something different than, than the supermarket spirituality where we walk down the aisles and decide what we want to take and what we want to leave on the shelves. Right? He offers us something, something better. And so in our individualistic, consumeristic, have-it-your-way culture... It's probably not surprising to you for me to say that, that people like to pick and choose. Whether within, the, with, whether within their own religion, picking and choose what parts they want to, to believe, or whether it comes to across all different religions, picking and choose what they want to adapt. And so what Jesus comes to do is Jesus puts an end to this buffet-style religion. And the way he goes about doing that is not by stopping it from existence, because obviously it still exists, but Jesus offers something that no other religion can offer. Jesus offers something better. What, what we have is Jesus' response to the buffet-style religion is offering something you can't get at the buffet. Right? What Jesus does is he comes, he says, all right, that buffet-style religion, that's great if you want Golden Corral, but I'm offering you a filet. Right? The, the, the two don't compare. And so Jesus offers something that you can't find anywhere else. And so, so, so for, the, for this idea that the person might say, all right, I, want, I want the death of Jesus... But, but I, I'm not into the resurrection, but I, I like this idea of karma. Right, right Jesus says that that's, if you, if you take out parts or you supplement it with something else, you're going to miss the meal that is truly satisfying. Right, if, if you're just going to embrace the Sermon on the Mount because it's loving, but you also want to embrace the, the teachings of Muhammad, right, it's not going to measure up. You're going to miss something by taking away parts of what Jesus comes to teach. Or even if you, you embrace the idea that, all right, I'm going to embrace this religion, like this one's mine, but they're all good, and so I'll be me and you be you, and as long as we don't upset one another, we're all fine because they're all, they're all basically the same anyways. And so Jesus comes and he puts an end to that by offering something that nothing else can. By offering something that no other religion can offer. By offering something that no combination of religions can offer. By offering something the absence of religion can't offer. 
If you could turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter 4. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1,902. So today we're continuing this series, The End of Religion. Last week we talked about the end of rule-based religion. That when Jesus came, he was harshest with those who were the most religious. And what he was harshest about was the fact that they oriented their lives and their relationship with God based on their performance. Their ability to follow the rules, not based on what God has done for them. And so what we see Jesus do is Jesus puts an end to rule-based religion by offering something better. That our standing before God is not based on what we do for God, but what God's done for us. And so today, now we see Jesus do the same. We see him do the same with this pluralistic idea that you can pick and choose, that they're all essentially the same. And now you might think as we talk about this that this is a new idea... Right, that picking and choosing, having, adopting practices of other religions is, is a new thing. But in fact, it, it is, it is a, it's been around for a very long time. In fact, the Old Testament highlights the Israelites adopting spiritual practices of other religious groups. And the problems that it creates. We see, we see the Apostle Paul when he goes to, to the city of Mars Hill. He finds this group of people who are very spiritual and have altars to all these different gods. And in the middle have this one unknown God. And so Paul preaches them Jesus by saying, The God you don't know about is better than all these other gods that you might be, might be trying to follow. Even in Jesus' interaction with the Samaritans. The Samaritans are people who embrace parts of what the Pharisees believe. That they believe parts of the Hebrew scriptures. But the Pharisees would look at them as not true true followers of God because they don't embrace all of it. And so this idea of picking and choosing is not a new idea. Although it's especially popular today, it's not a new idea. And so John writes in 1 John, I'll begin in verse 1. He says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So John writes this letter to Christians and he writes it because he wants to protect them. Because as they are trying to follow after Jesus, what John has realized is that they have many competing influences That they have many competing ideas. In fact, they have many people who will claim to be speaking as though they are from God when what they are speaking is actually leading people away from God. That it's not leading people to a a right standing from God. That That it's creating something different. And so John makes an observation that is important. When he says, test every spirit. And he says, this is how you recognize the spirit of God. See, what John wants to do as he wants to remind them, his friends, his, his, the other followers of Jesus, is, is that not everyone who claims to be from God is from God. That just because a person says to be speaking the truth of God doesn't mean that it's actually from God. And, and see, this is at the heart of where we get into the problems of pick and choose spirituality. Because there are a lot of people who say they are from God. 
A lot of spiritual ideas, a lot of teachers will say, all right, this is from God, and this is my idea, and this is, this is what God wants you to think. But there are not everybody who claims to be speaking the truth of God is actually from God. Even within in our own religion, you, you can have the, the tension that, that somebody might use the label Christian or might say they're talking about the Bible, yet not actually be teaching what the Scriptures taught. Right, and so that's why, so what John wants to encourage, test the spirits, right? Test it, test it. Does it match up? Does it line up with what God is saying? Because if somebody claims to be from God but is not teaching what God actually said, then they're probably not from God. When you come here, right, we, we want you to do this. Test, test everything. When I stand up and hear, don't just assume that because I say I'm speaking what God wants you to hear, that it's what God wants you to hear. Test it. Is it what God is actually saying? Now, I think you can also nuance this a bit and expand it to include those who might be skeptical or critical of of any ideas of God. And you could expand that by saying not everyone who claims to speak truth is telling the truth. And so now by saying it this way, it includes those who would say there is no God. Now it would include those who said that all paths lead to the same place. Now, the person who says that might not believe there is a God. So they might not be claiming to be from God, but they are claiming that their way of thinking, that their belief is true. Because if they didn't think it was was true, they wouldn't say it. But but here, here, again, here's the thing. Just because somebody says it's true doesn't mean it's actually true. And so test it. Does it line up? Does it match up? And so when a person claims to speak truth, What they are ultimately doing, whether or not they consider themselves religious, they are making a claim about their own religious views. Consider the foundational claim to pick and choose spirituality. The foundational question. In fact, many of you may have wrestled with that. I think it's an important question. Aren't all religions a path to the same God? Don't they all ultimately end up leading to the same place? No, if the answer to that question is yes, then buffet-style spirituality is great. Because if they all ultimately lead to the same place, it doesn't matter what you pick and choose. Just pick what works best for you because it all ends up all being good. And so this is a question, an important question to wrestle with. And it's foundational to those who would say, all right, pick this, I don't like this, I like this. Or I pick this one, and, but, but mine's not the superior one. And so I want to challenge this, this way of thinking, this question for a moment. And, and now some of you may be here, and you might be skeptics. You may be unsure about Christianity, and that's fine. I, I am so glad you're here, and I want to push back on this. Um, and it's not for the sake—I don't want to try to argue you into the kingdom of God, because I just don't think that works. Um, but what I want to do is I want to push and create some tension around that question. And I want to, I want to do, create some tension to get where John gets. To help you see how you are, the vantage point that you are looking at things and ultimately asking those questions to get us to Jesus. Because I believe Jesus is superior to any way of thinking. And so I want to create some tension and then ultimately point us to Jesus. And so that question, aren't all religions a path to the same God? Th- think about that question. See, at the heart of that argument is that, that, that no one really can see the whole picture. Right, at the heart of the argument, as somebody might say, and some of you may have even, even heard this before, is, is how can you be so arrogant to believe that you see the picture in the path to God? How, how can you be so arrogant 
to believe that your path is the right path. I mean, the one that you happen to be so lucky to be born into, the one that you happen to just believe in, right? how can you be so arrogant to believe that? Now, the tension is the idea that you don't see the whole picture requires that person to see a picture that no one else sees. Right? The, the, the tension with that. Is, is when they call out your arrogance for believing what you believe, they are at the same time being so arrogant to claim that they, that they see the picture that no one else can see. When, when they criticize your, your, the idea that, that your belief system is exclusive, what they're asking is you to exclusively hold their non-exclusivist views. Right, and, so, and, and, and now again, and there, there's, a, there's a lot of questions and a lot of doubts that lead somebody to be in this place. And, 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 so, and so they're important questions to wrestle with. But what I, want, I, what I want to just point out is that these are all vantage points that are shaping the way that we talk about this book. And the way we talk about religion and the way we talk about God. And so what I just want to do is I just want to make our biases clear. And that all of us are coming at this conversation with some sort of belief and faith in something. Whether that's God or science or, or my own thoughts and ideas. We're all coming at this from some perspective. And so John points this out then in verses 5 and 6. Right? Notice what John says. Those people belong to this world. So they speak from the world's viewpoint. And the world listens to them. But we belong to God and those who know God listen to us. Now, there's a little bit to this that, that, that makes me uneasy. I'm not crazy about the idea of, of the language, right, those people. It creates a sense of, like, how can we talk about people like that? But, but here's, the, but here's what, what John's not doing, right? John's not trying to create this us versus them idea. That, that, and, and we know that because if you keep reading in verses 7 through 10, John's going to be all about now loving people, right, loving others, loving those who don't agree with you. Loving those who don't come from the same viewpoint you do. And so what John is trying to do here is he's not trying to create an us versus them. What he wants to point out is that everybody comes from some spiritual vantage point. And so when he says those from the world, they, they come from the viewpoint of the world. Those from God come from the vantage point of, of God. That everybody comes from some spiritual vantage point. In other words, if you don't believe the whole resurrection thing, that's your vantage point. That's going to inform the conversation. That's going to inform the way you think about the Bible. That's going to inform the way you talk about spirituality and the way you live in response to that. If you don't believe there's any God, right, that's your vantage point. And so it's going to impact the way you talk about religion. It's going to impact the way you talk about faith and belief. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that's your vantage point. And so the point here is that all of us have a vantage point. That there is no unbiased, objective way of us having this conversation. And so what I want for us is us to simply be honest. Say, so here's my vantage point. Here's your vantage point. And then as we talk about those vantage points, to then ask, well, well, is there a possibility that one vantage point is better? Is there a possibility that one way of looking at things is superior. And so obviously now my bias, I, I'm pretty sure you can guess my bias, um, is, is that Jesus does offer something superior. And, and, and here's the thing. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, 
If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then I would suggest we should probably pay attention to Jesus' vantage point. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, and consider it, all historical evidence outside of Christian sources would, would suggest that D Jesus did actually die. And those who are Jesus' followers, who are eyewitnesses of what happened after Jesus' death, were willing to die for their claim that Jesus rose from the dead. And so if that actually happened, then we should probably consider Jesus' vantage point. How did Jesus view the scriptures? How did Jesus view humanity? How did Jesus tell the story? How did Jesus suggest that he came to live and came to give himself to us? Because the question we must ask is if not everyone is from God and it's not all true, then what is true? And if everyone comes from some vantage point, some true and some not true, which vantage point is best? And if Jesus' vantage point is best, why is it best? Why is it better? Why is it unique? How is it different than any other religion that I could choose? How is it any different than what I could pick and choose and create myself? And so in this, in this letter from John... He makes some important observations about how we know what is true. And in the midst of those observations, he makes some points about the work of Jesus that I think are significant. When we talk about the vantage point that we believe is superior when we point to Jesus. And again, throughout this series, what we've been trying to do is our goal is not to point you to religion or to a group of people, but to point to Jesus. What's unique about Jesus because if we point to Christians, it's not going to work because you know as well as I do that, that as Christians, we, we often are labeled as hypocritical and judgmental. And the label often fits. But when we point to Jesus, Jesus offers something that no one else can offer. And so, and so notice some of the observations that John makes. Notice verse 2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come. All right, this is an important distinction when, when Jesus views the world. When we look at what makes Jesus distinct, Jesus came. That is different than any other way of looking at the world. See, God's response to the problems of sin and suffering in this world was not to stand back. But, but it was for God himself to enter into it. Jesus came. Jesus lived. Jesus is not just some prophet who came to speak words of God. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. And so God came in human flesh who lived among us. God died. And he rose. Jesus came. Right? And so, so Jesus shows something unique in that he came. Foundational to the message of Jesus is he comes. He comes for you. Now what John also records is, a, is a small, just a few words following Jesus came that are hugely important when we consider Jesus in comparison to other religions. It says that Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is from God. No, no, I don't know if you, if you know this, but when, you, when we talk about other religions, this is a very, very scandalous idea that Jesus would come in the flesh, that God would actually take on human flesh. 
See, the, you can divide religion in, into two main categories, Eastern religions and Western religions. And so Eastern religions, which would be like Hinduism or Buddhism, the, the way that Eastern religions treat the flesh is, is the flesh is really an illusion. That what we experience, that this world, evil, suffering, sin, that it's, that it's all, it's just a problem up here. And so meditation, enlightenment, all become paths to overcome e- evil, to overcome the problems that your mind have created. That flesh, the flesh isn't really real. And so when Jesus, when, when, the, when the scriptures tell us now that Jesus came in the flesh, that requires the belief that the flesh is actually real. That, and when Jesus came and he lived, and Jesus suffered and he died, it requires that, that, no, that those things are actually real. Because if they weren't real, if they weren't an illusion, that Jesus wouldn't have been hurt. That Jesus wouldn't have cried. Jesus wouldn't have been hungry. Jesus wouldn't have suffered. Right? And so Jesus came in the flesh that sets him apart from any Eastern religious ideas. And on the other side, you have Western religion. Now, Western religion is a little bit tricky. And and Western religion could include paganism, New Ageism. But the part that makes it tricky is that in the history of Christianity, Christianity is also heavily influenced by being a part of Western culture. And so because of Christendom and the development of that, you'll also find some of these ideas creeping into Christianity, um, which might make some of this even surprising to you. And so the goal of Western religion when it comes to the flesh is to escape the flesh. All right, so the goal of a Western religion would be the flesh is bad. And so, the soul, and so what it does, it creates a separation. The soul's good, the body's bad. And the goal is get the soul out of the body. The, 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 the West, a Western religion would say, all right, earth is bad, the world is bad. And so the goal is to get out of this place and get somewhere else. And some of us will even see this, this creeping in to, to the way that Christians talk and think. And some of it coming from Scripture itself, because the Scripture does use the language of the flesh when it talks about the sinful flesh. But the way that the Scripture is describing this is it's describing our sin nature, not the inherent goodness or badness of what God created itself. Right? And instead, what the, the way the Scripture describes the flesh is the flesh is good, but it's been tainted by sin. It's been damaged and broken by sin. This world is good, but it's been broken by sin. And so what, what Jesus offers is something very unique, because the goal is not to escape. It's not for the soul to escape the body or, or for, for, for humanity to escape this place, but it's actually to redeem it. See, see, the story of Jesus, the vantage point of Jesus, is that Jesus redeems all of his creation. I, I, I want you to think about the way that Jesus lived, right? Jesus came, he lived, he died, and when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in what? His body, right? Jesus in the same body, the same body he died in. There's still scars, right? He asked Thomas to feel the scars. And so Jesus rose in the body, and then when he ascends into heaven, in that same body, Jesus ascends into heaven. And so the goal can't be for Jesus, at least according to his vantage point, the goal can't be to escape the body because the body is bad, but to redeem the body, to redeem what was broken. And and the goal in the Christian story, when, when we actually look at the full story, it begins in the Garden of Eden with things perfect. And the end of the story is God's creation made new, restored, And so what we have is not an escape from the flesh, but the flesh restored. See, heaven is a brief interlude 
in the story of Jesus. I want, I want you to think about that for a minute, because for some of you, that may be a brand new idea that you never thought about before. Or he- heaven is an incredible promise. He- heaven is incredible news, but it gets better. Or he- heaven is like the appetizer. Because the end of the story, if heaven was the end, then we are not all that different than Western religion. If the goal was just to escape the flesh, to escape the body, escape this world, we aren't that different. But that's not the goal. Heaven is an interlude because the end of the story is, is the return of Christ. And God restores all of this creation that he redeems all of it, that those who died in faith are raised from the dead, that our bodies and our souls are connected in the same way that Christ has a bodily resurrection. You and I have a bodily resurrection, and, that, and it's not to, in order to get us all out of this place, but in the end, heaven comes crashing to earth. Heaven and earth are made new. That's the end of the story, and that is far different than any other story. And so here's the thing, when we, when we, when we understand that, see, see, because every vantage point you come from is going to have to deal with certain questions. Every vantage point is going to have questions that can't be answered, things that can't be explained, tensions that you have to wrestle with. You, you, you just can't. And so when we're honest, what we'll, we'll realize is all of those vantage points are going to have, have problems that we don't know how to deal with. Like, for example... Think of the problem of evil and suffering. That's one of the, the most difficult tensions that we can have to wrestle with. Right, why do bad things happen? Well, why, why do we witness national tragedies, natural disasters, genocide? Like, how do you explain that? When you consider the vantage points, every vantage point has to deal with that somehow. And so for an Eastern religion, well, those things aren't really real. That's not what's ultimately real, and so it's a problem of the mind. That sin, suffering, evil doesn't actually exist. Western religion says, well, good news is you're going to die. That's the best best that a Western religion can do. Or no religion at all will say, well, we we got a logical explanation about this. And we can explain it because it's the progression of the human species. And so only the strong will survive. And so it's actually promoting the, the progression of the species. Because when, the, when, when people die, when genocide happens, it's actually, it's actually promoting the progress of the human species. But now, now consider Jesus. Because now, now Jesus, is still, you're still going to have some questions. But perhaps, perhaps it's better when we consider how Jesus responds. Because Jesus doesn't pretend it's not real. And Jesus doesn't say, we're escaping this problem. And Jesus doesn't explain the way the problem. But Jesus enters into the problem. And even in the midst of while it still is bad, and while we still have the effects of sin in this world, the promise is not just that when when we die and go to heaven, it gets better, which it does. It does get better. But the promise is ultimately that it all gets restored. That it all gets put back the way that God intended. And so if you've ever been one of those people who, who wrestled with the tension that why, why, why do so many Christians just want to die and get out of here? I kind of like this place. Um, that's okay. 
And it's okay, it's okay that, that many of you actually look forward to the hope of heaven. But it's also okay to, to understand that in the whole of the story, this place is a part of God's good creation. And God's goal is he wants to restore all of this. And he wants to make it his perfect creation again where it's all made new. Where there is no more sadness. Where there is no more pain. Where there is no more suffering. See, what Jesus tells is a different story. And so John, offering this unique vantage point of Jesus, then says, Dear friends, let us love one another. And I think it's significant that he says, says this following the unique distinctions of Jesus. Because, because consider it, if the love of Jesus is gracious... And it's not dependent on religious behavior. It's not dependent on your goodness. If Jesus is gracious and he doesn't pretend the problem doesn't exist and he doesn't just try to make you escape from the problem and he doesn't explain away the problem, but he enters into it. Now, as those who follow Jesus, what if we saw our role as doing the same thing? To, to not pretend somebody's problems aren't real problems. To not just try to escape and long for a, for a time to get away from them. Or not try to explain it away, but to say, no, we can be a part of the redemption of what is broken. By loving you in the midst of where you're hurting. In the midst of what is broken. And so John explains that this love, this gracious compassionate, merciful love of God, it will spill out into the love we have for each other. And so he says this, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, Jesus doesn't ignore your sin. And Jesus doesn't ignore the pain. He doesn't pretend it's not real. And he doesn't say we're just going to escape from it. He doesn't just explain it away. He says, no, we are going to redeem it. We are going to redeem the hurt, the pain, the sin, the suffering. And that love, that love produces love. And that is why I would argue that Jesus' vantage point is superior. Because it's not only then most beneficial for you, but it's most beneficial to the world. Because when you love like Jesus loved, you're willing to go to the broken and hurting places. To not ignore the problem. To not ignore your problem or their problem. To not try to escape so you don't have to deal with the problem. And not explain it away, but to simply love because that's what people need. And that's exactly what Jesus gives to you. Regardless of what you do for him. Because Jesus loves you with no strings attached. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the promise of your love. We, we thank you that you give to us what no other religion can give to us, that no spirituality that we can pick and choose and try to create for ourselves can do for us. And so we hold to that promise that you love us. We hold to the promise that you came. That you came to this world, the sinful, broken place, not to destroy it and not to dismiss it, but to redeem it. And you came to redeem us. To rescue us from sin, from evil, from suffering. 
And you do that not by ignoring it or helping us get away from it without dealing with it, but instead you suffer alongside us. You hurt with us. You give your life for us. And as you do that, as you die, and as you rise again, what you promise to us is that we have the promise of the resurrection. The promise that all who die will be a part of your new creation. That we have the promise of heaven while we wait for all of your creation to be made new, for it all to be restored and put back together. And so Jesus, we thank you for this promise. This promise that we can cling to, that we can trust, and that we believe in. Amen.